and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. Before we get started with our show today, I wanted to share some feedback that we received from Apple Podcasts. And there was a review by a listener, Tracy M. And she wrote, I love this podcast. It's all the behind the scenes bookish info you didn't know was missing in your life. So interesting and informative. I'm learning about bookish things I did not know about prior, and I'm so grateful for the knowledge. Amy and Carrie are such gentle, generous hosts and very entertaining. My favorite podcast episode is episode 54. If you've ever fantasized about owning a bookstore, this episode is for you. I highly recommend you give a listen. Thanks, Tracy. We really appreciate all those good vibes. And if you would like to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or any of the podcast platforms, we will read it on the air. Our episode this week is going to look a little different than usual. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, so Amy and I decided to interview two authors whose new memoirs deal with their mental health issues and the addictions that resulted from those issues. I think there's hardly a family who hasn't been touched in some way by mental illness. And I know, Carrie, you've been very open about your struggles with obsessive compulsive disorder. And I know that it certainly touched my family as as well. And for many years, mental illness in all of its forms, whether it be anxiety, depression, OCD, suicide, or bipolar disorder, it was kept under wraps in families. And But that made the sufferers and their loved ones feel even more isolated. Right. But recently, memoirs about messy lives and dysfunctional families. I mean, we're all a little dysfunctional. And the realities of finding help have become increasingly popular. And and they can be a powerful tool, not just for the author to kind of work through some of their issues, but also to the people who read those memoirs. Our guests this week, J.D. Graham and Vitaly Buford, chat with us about the power of the messy memoir. So in part one of this week's show, J.D. talks to us about her book, The Soul Grind, Fighting for light amongst the trenches, an account of her struggles with alcohol and drugs in her teenage years. JD, thanks for joining us today. I am so pumped to be here. I'm so glad you all asked. Tell us just a little bit about you and about what your life is like now. What kind of work do you do when you're not talking about your new book? Oh, well, like many women, I do a lot of things. I am a mama. I'm also a social worker. I am the assistant program director at a local nonprofit here in Louisville, Kentucky. And the rest of the time, I am just trying to heal myself. I'm trying to grow every single day and I'm trying to be the best version of myself and love a lot of women in the process. So your book, The Soul Grind, Fighting for Light Amidst the Trenches. And I just want to tell you, I really love that phrase, the soul grind. There's just something about it that's very satisfying to say and to think about. So tell us just a little bit about your book. Well, the title of The Soul Grind actually 
comes from the soul as in like the soul journey and the grind as in coffee grinds. I am a sober living woman. And so I am very fond of coffee. And so coffee grinds actually came into the soul grind title because I've had a lot of epic and meaningful conversations with coffee in my hand. So it has been um, something that is very dear to my heart and something that I have, you know, had a lot of humbling and hard conversations around and with. So that's where the community aspect of the soul grind comes in. The book in itself, the soul grind is truly about uh, my journey for 20 years. So I started in therapy, going through the timeline of my life. As you will see after reading the book, there's a lot that occurred in my first 20 years of life. It's messy. It's chaotic. It's one thing after another. So when I was going through the timeline of my life and literally examining what occurred and how to heal through it, I started writing it in therapy. Soon after that, I started writing it in a journal. After that, I started writing and posting it on social media as well as just writing for myself. And one day I looked at these pages and pages of my life. And I was like, why don't I just turn this into a book? Not only am I healing through it, but I feel like it could help a lot of people as well. There's another term that you used a lot in your book, the word trenches. I'm wondering if you can talk about a little bit how that relates to your mental health and the addiction issues and what that word means to you. Trenches to me is the hardest times of our life. So when I think of trenches, I think of muck. I think of waiting in what feels like sinking sand, but that it's all caked on you. And no matter how hard you try to like take a step or you try relentlessly to make a move or you try so hard to get out, it feels like you are absolutely stuck. So trenches to me in my personal life symbolized my numbing lifestyle which was pills and alcohol, as well as like, you know, mental illness, um, cutting myself at a very young age. It also represents like the anger and the resentments that I had towards my dad and the family dynamics of domestic violence and addiction that I was exposed to at a really young age. So all that muck that I talk about is Mm -hmm. the things that literally kept me from healing, kept me from feeling, kept me from growing kept me from being able to truly thrive and to connect my own dots and heal or feel life in itself. I really encourage people as they're reading to not think of just my muck, but to think of what their muck looks like, what that feels like, what their muck would be. Like if you were to take out just pieces of that muck, what would it say on it? You know, what would it feel like? What pieces are caked on you, whether it be abuse, whether it be like substance issues, whether it be addiction, whether it be anger or grief or pain, trials and tribulations, like everybody's muck looks different. But within this book, I talk about my deep trenches and how truly discovering them and talking about them and healing through them is what made me really truly fight for light within them. I wanted to go back for a second. JD, you said about the soul grind. You have a little boy, is that right? Yes. Okay, I don't know if he's into playing video games. I have two boys. They're big into playing video games. And they say something like, I'm going to grind on this video game. <laughs> have you ever heard that phrase? Yes. Like, so we, okay. we talk about the grind in this house as in like, we got to grind to get this done or we got to grind to do okay. this or, you know, mommy's had to grind to get here, grind to get there. So I definitely love 
the perspective of the soul grind being something that like is the inner work that we have to continue to trudge, the inner work that we have to continue to work on. It's truly a grind to discover yourself, to heal, to learn who you are. Again, it's definitely a different type of grind. I automatically think, you know, like that really working, churning and just going at something like the hardest that you can. I mean, as a language arts teacher, I totally loved, you know, the way the title in so many ways, not just grind, but trenches and light, you know, there's just so many different ways that those words can mean slightly different things to people and they can take something from it, which is super cool. So you mentioned that the book came from journaling and from things that you've done as as part of therapy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when it was journaling, were you just going through and and writing down all your thoughts? Did you have a process to that or was it just kind of getting everything out? Um, With journaling, I have a lot of trouble journaling because I feel like there's a lot of expectations around journaling. So Mm -hmm. I feel like when we get caught up in it, if you're anything like me, I'm like, I mean, so where am I supposed to start? Where am I supposed to end? How long am I supposed to be doing this for this to help me in some shape or form? Or should I be focusing on this? Or should I even drift off into this? So like when I started in therapy, um, she literally did a timeline. And so like I learned a different way for me to truly dig into what the core was to be able to journal differently. So, and that's Mm -hmm. like the process that I encourage other women to do. That's the process I do. So writing is one thing for me, but my journaling looks very different than the norm because I felt like I wasn't getting anything or I wasn't getting what I needed to in just throwing stuff on a piece of paper. So actually what Mm -hmm. I start with is like a topic in the sense of me writing about my life. It was like something that occurred at a certain year or at a certain age. And then underneath that, I'm going to put like bullet points or things that really are brought up for me that I feel like I would like to dig into more. And then I started filling in the data, like the details to it when I started to write. So at first I had like feelings and how this affected my life and what I did with it. And then after that, I was like, let me bring the story into it. And that's when I started incorporating the details, what I call data, and truly what happened, like the in-betweenness, which I talk about a lot in the book. Tell me about the publication. Mm-hmm. Did you get a, a contract and, and pitch an idea and then have to put it together? Or had you already gotten it put together and then you were able to find a publisher? Tell me a little bit about that. So I worked on The Soul Grind for two years. First, not with the concept of it being a book but I was writing. So I would put things on social media. I call them passion booms. So I would like feel something and then I would lean all the way into it. And that's when I started having photos to go along with it that portrayed certain times of my life. And so I would post that and then I would copy and paste the post and I would put it on this Word document that just started getting longer and longer, piecing bits of my story together. So after that, um, I had like at one point like 90 pages. And I had a couple of people that I really trusted look through it and to help me edit it. And then I was like, you know what, let me see what I can do to reach out to other people. So my mom is like my person and she was watching Good Morning America one morning and um, Anna David was on there and she had just published a book called How to Make Your Mess a Memoir. And my mom was like, oh, I'm, I'm getting it. So the next thing I knew, like she handed me this book. I started reading it and I absolutely loved the way that Anna wrote. I love how much of a conversation it was. She just felt like my vibe. And so I actually 
am pretty relentless. When I have an idea, I lean into it. And so I looked into her website, realized that she had recently started a publishing company. So I reached out, I got nothing. And I was like, well, maybe I didn't put enough content in there. I'm going to try again. So <laughs> the next day I wrote them again. And this time I attached some of my speaking engagements. I attached some things from my social media. I attached like more of my story and my heart. And so the next day I was actually reading her book and um, I opened my email and I had an email directly from her. And she was like, can we chat tomorrow? And so I actually talked to her for 30 minutes the next day. And I, we totally vibed and within like 48 hours, I had a contract. So it was like a beautiful divine moment. All of her team is absolutely incredible. Like, I think it's hard when you're in this type of environment to find a team that really wants what's best for you and really wants to honor your voice. Best team I could imagine. Um, and that's Launchpad Publishing. And I wouldn't have done it with anybody else. So this is a good segue into chatting a little bit about how addiction has become a topic that people are more willing to discuss. And there seems to be an increased interest in books about people's struggles with addiction. And so I'm wondering, have you read any of those other books that are, are like yours? And if so, are there ones that you found most helpful? It's crazy you say that because within the past six months, I really have been like digging deeper into my sobriety. It's almost been six years of sober living, and I never considered myself an addict. I just said I was going to erase the buffers to my healing and the things that were numbing me, and I was going to start to live a sober lifestyle. So just recently, I have been desiring more wisdom and awareness in that. So I have asked a lot of people in recovery to like send me books, to send me opportunities, uh, meetings, all that kind of stuff, because I feel like I'm in a different phase of my sobriety now. A new set of glasses um, is one that I just recently got. I also read Codependent No More in two days. Absolutely loved that book. It has been huge in where I'm at in life right now. And then I also am doing the, I think it's the Gentle Journey to 12 Steps. So those are three books that I'm kind of grinding on right now to kind of go through the 12 steps in a different way, but also just to bring awareness to sobriety in general. And the Codependent No More book doesn't only talk about, you know, addiction, but it talks about your unfinished business. So a lot of things that you're doing in life right now are because you have unfinished business from your childhood or your adolescence. And sometimes like if we're, we continue to use the same type of ingredients, hoping for a different result. We have to get to the place of like, well, why are we doing these things? Or why do we think these things? Um, and so I think addiction in itself needs to be opened up to where it's not just pills. It's not just substances. It's not just alcohol. Like it can be relationships. It can be so many different things that I think that we really need to be talking about and where that all stems from. I think that's a, a really great point. I personally think a lot of times in some ways, busyness mm -hmm. has become like an addiction for people or consumerism. People, they, they shop, they shop or have to go. They can't just sit and, and just be still, you know? So I think that's a great point that addiction doesn't have to look like what we have typically gotten used to seeing as addiction. It, it can be as unique as each individual person, you know, depending on what it is that they're relying too much Absolutely. on. Absolutely. And I think at the core of it is what are we leaning into? 
what do we turn to when things are hard or when they're uncomfortable or when they're difficult? Like, what are those things that you're leaning into and are they healthy and where do they come from and why do you lean into that? So just really asking ourselves the deeper questions and figuring out like how we tick and why that is. So at one point in your book, you mentioned that a therapist at a residential camp that you went to when you were a teenager handed you a book and that it made an impact on your life at that time. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. And I'm wondering if, because that book meant a lot to you at the time, is that one of the reasons that you wanted to write your own book? At the residential care facility, my mindset there was to get out. (laughs) Really the task that my therapist would give me Normally I completed because it would get me to the next step. So everything that she handed me to do was like homework that I knew would get me to the next phase. So she actually gave me homework to go along with it. It's the art of forgiveness is the book that she gave me. And instead of just saying, Hey, read this, she said, Hey, read this. And then you're going to have to write through this. And that really challenged me because I, first of all, hated reading. And second of all, I just had one mindset and that was to get out. So when she had me and really challenged me to like dig into forgiveness, it was one of the most powerful things she could have done. This book opened my eyes and my awareness to like forgiveness was not like a, you know, I lose, you win type of scenario. It really opened my eyes to like the intimacy of forgiveness and that it was about me, what I was carrying and what I was holding and how to really do the work around that. And unless she would have handed me this book and unless she would have said, hey, I want you to write these things, I would have never been open to the most pivotal piece of my work. Mm -hmm. I think that's when I realized the power in reading other people's words and their wisdom and knowing that I don't have all the answers. And sometimes there's power in listening to other people's wisdom, their truth and their own journeys, because in that you have the ability to not only see things differently, but be able to aid in whatever you might be going through. So my book was definitely intended, first of all, for my own healing. And second of all, because I knew there's so many different people that are going through it. Like I say many times, like, I feel like if I would have had the soul grind in my hands, I wouldn't have had as many pages to write. And so I really wanted to write this book to have open conversation and to be able for other people to be seen and heard that they're not alone and that there's work to be done and that there's people that care and that you can make it out. You just got to fight for it sometimes. Memoirs, of course, are going to be very personal, but a lot of times they don't always show the writer in their best Mm -hmm. light, right? Writers sort of make themselves raw and vulnerable, which isn't always easy. So was that something that was difficult for you? And did you let people who maybe were going to have some things Mm -hmm. brought up in your book, did you let them know prior to publication? Talk to us a little bit about that. I did. So my life has been really messy. And in the process of being hurt and finding myself, I've hurt a lot of people. So as I've grown and as I've been on my journey, um, I've had to apologize to a lot of people. And um, I chose specific people to apologize to. And I knew going into that this was the work that I had to do. And regardless if they took it or received it or what they had to say, it was something I had to do. And it didn't matter if it was five years down the road, 10 years down the road, like it was something that I felt like I really needed to do as part of my journey and my healing and my personal growth was being humbled 
and to go back and say, like, I know that due to my behavior and due to the time of my life, like, I hurt you. That is something that I took very seriously. Other people, yes, I contacted them. I sent them portions of the book. I let them know that they were in it, especially my mom and my family. I tried my best to share with them everything that was on. My mom was in every editing round and her above everyone. I wanted to make sure that she felt honored and that she knew what was going to come of the process. And I went into it knowing that a lot of this book has literally, it's like 90% of my, I say, face down in the arena moments. And a lot of those times I've had to work through a lot of shame and I've had to have a lot of grace with myself in the process. It's not easy writing these books. It's been quite the journey um, doing this and it's going to be a journey right in the second one. I'm seeing that right now. This is not easy. Well, and it's kind of a paradox, but it takes a lot of strength to be vulnerable. Absolutely. You know, I mean, people think, oh, you know, it's weakness, but it's not. It, it takes a lot of internal fortitude to be able to show somebody that you're not perfect, even though we all know that nobody's perfect. So I, I think that there's a lot that people, especially I think young women can gain from that because I don't know that it's gotten worse, but, you know, I think because of social media, we all are susceptible because we are showing those curated moments, right? <laughs> all of those perfect yeah. moments We're in our lives. We're not showing so, the in-betweenness. And that's one thing exactly. that I emphasize every single time that I like speak anywhere is that in order for me to sit and talk about where I am today, I cannot do it without talking about where I've been. And I think that comes also with sharing our vulnerabilities and sharing like the struggle and the trudge and the grind that it's not easy. You know, it's not easy to heal. It's not easy to get sober. It's not easy to step out of like unhealthy relationships. It's not easy to like be a single mom or a young mom. It's not easy. Like the list goes on, like fill in what's going on with you. And we have to honor those too, because those pieces make us who we are. So I know that you give some workshops uh, to help other women, and you also have an online site called, like your book, Soul Grind. So tell us a little bit about those things. Yeah. So the Soul Grind community is booming. It's beautiful. Um, so it's an online hub on social media. It's on Facebook. It's on Instagram. But it also is in person. I've hosted several women's retreats. All of them are emphasizing finding the light within your trenches, but also stepping into who you truly are by looking into and focusing in and discovering where you've been and being able to really honor the trudge, honor what you've done to be who you are now. So I host those at coffee shops. I've done them at various places. I've also done online groups. All of those are just to have like-minded people come together and have some real dope conversations that actually are below the surface and that have you connecting in a deeper way and be able to, at the end of the day, feel more empowered, more in tune with who you are and to really step into the fierce soul that you are for all that you are. So you intimated that you might be writing another book or are writing another book. So are some of these things that you are doing in your soul grind network, things that will appear in your next book? So this one focused in a lot of the trenches. Um, the next one is going to be a lot about the fight. So the last book stopped when I was 20 and I just found out I was pregnant. So we go from pregnancy on. This one's going to focus in on the climb 
Um, so in this book, I am starting to wake up. I'm starting to sober up. I'm starting to heal up and rise. So I'm really excited to talk about this and to write about it. I'm only on page 20, so let's not get too excited about that. But, um, <laughs> we are, I'm, the beginning of this book is hard to write about. So I'm giving myself time to process through it and to genuinely heal through it like I did the first one. When I read your book and I finished it, it was almost like a cliffhanger <laughs> because I thought, what, what, what happens next? <laughs> so, so I'm... <laughs> So I'm glad that you're writing another one where you're continuing your story. So that's yes, great. Yes, me too. And I'm glad the story didn't end there. So <laughs> that's Absolutely. Right. Well, thank you so much, JD. We've, we've really enjoyed learning about the soul grind. I have loved every second. And I just want to say that um, thank you for emphasizing the power of our stories and for um, highlighting them. So I think it's really important, not only that we tell them, but that people are offering opportunities for other voices to be heard. So I can't thank you enough for that. So our next guest is Vitaly Buford, who talks to us about her 2020 memoir, Addicted to Perfect, in which she describes her 10-year addiction to the prescription drug Adderall. And that's a drug that is often prescribed for people with ADHD. But for those people who abuse the drug, it can cause euphoria and the feeling of having superhuman amounts of energy, which maybe sounds like it would be helpful sometimes, but really isn't. So in Vitaly's case, she used Adderall because she felt it gave her the energy to be able to be perfect. Vitaly, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm so glad to be here. I saw your name on the docket for the Louisville Book Festival that happened last fall. Some of our listeners who are in the Louisville area might have been able to, to catch you at that. But for those who didn't, can you just provide just a little bit about your book, Addicted to Perfect? Yeah, so Addicted to Perfect is my memoir. It is a real and raw account of overcoming a 10-year addiction to Adderall, what led to it, and then the realization that my true addiction was perfectionism. How did the idea to write the book come about? What did that look like for you? Yeah, so I got sober almost seven years ago. And when that happened, I just realized, you know, at some point I want to write a book. I want to tell my story. I want to tell my story because not a lot of people are talking about this type of addiction, but also I want to share, you know, my story in a real way, because I feel like as humans, we minimize our stories, right? We minimize it because we think someone else had it worse, or we minimize it because it hurts too bad to relive it. And so I wanted to encourage people to own their stories. For myself, I have obsessive compulsive disorder, and I have been talking about that online, social media. Do you think part of it, too, is people are embarrassed? They think, oh, you know, it's a it's a weakness of mine. I don't want everybody to know that about me. You want people to see your best self. And when you have any type of condition, whether it's mental or physical or whatever, that's not always your best self. Oh, of course. And I, I think people feel alone. They feel isolated. And that's oftentimes why they, they don't share as well. What was your process for writing? Was it something that you thought about for a while and then started? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. 
So the funny thing is, is I avoided writing this book for quite some time. And I remember I hired a book coach and I was like, this is going to help me write it. And then I was like, let me find someone, a ghostwriter to write my book. I mean, there was, you know, doing anything to avoid it. And then I remember I was at a book signing for Glennon Doyle. This was like 2017 or 16. And she was signing my book and I was like, what advice would you give to someone to, you know, to write their book? And she was like, um, to write it. (laughs) (laughs) Just do it like Nike. I'm like, that is not helpful. I'm like, there's gotta be some other way around getting your book completed other than writing it. And, And so for me, I also just had this level of awareness that, you know, there's two ways obviously to go about a book, right? Self-publishing or getting a publisher. And I knew that my story was going to be triggering enough and hard enough to write that I needed a publisher, right? I needed a legal deadline to be held accountable to. And so I found a book agent and they sold my book idea and I, and I wrote it. So I, and I wrote it actually in five weeks. Oh, wow. Wow. That's pretty amazing. I've been thinking about it for obviously years and, you know, subconsciously my lifetime, but (laughs) I sat down and that's all I did for five weeks. For me, I just wanted to, to tell my story. I knew that a lot of people felt alone because I felt alone, you know, for 10 years, I kept my addiction a secret. And when I finally admitted that I had a problem, it was so liberating and it, it just, changed me. I mean, obviously getting sober, I changed, but just the ability to not keep it a secret anymore changed my life so profoundly. Yeah. There's definitely a freedom that comes with letting yourself be yourself and letting other people see, I guess, the full picture of you. You know, there's a lot of freedom that comes with that. Right. And for me, I've been, you know, hiding under this mask of perfectionism, right? Like people aren't going to love me unless I'm taking Adderall. And I think I need Adderall to be perfect. I mean, it was you know, just this never ending cycle. With that struggle with perfectionism, did you find that also a struggle when writing your book Well, about wanting the book to be perfect? Well, I would say that's why I put off writing it. And that's the reason I wrote it in five weeks is I remember my publisher was called me and she was like, if you don't get the first draft done by, you know, June 28th, the book's not going to come out for much longer. Message received. I will start writing it. And so for me, I knew, okay, I'm a, I'm a recovering perfectionist and I'm going to have to throw perfectionism out the window. So I wrote it unedited. I did not check grammar because I knew also there were going to be people doing that for me. And it was like done is better than perfect. I remember Elizabeth Gilbert writing in Big Magic that the first book is better than no book. So what did the editing process look like for your memoir? You know, wrote it in that five weeks. You knew that you had editors who were going to look at it for you. So did the editing process, was that a bigger undertaking than yes. what you thought it was going to be? Yeah, the editing process was much harder. So, you know, a content editor uh, went over it, not the grammar stuff, but just the content of it. That was more painful for me because she wanted me to dive deeper into my story. And it was like, well, this has already been traumatic enough. You want me to go deeper into my story? I thought I had gone deep enough. (laughs) And so that part was really hard, but it was really powerful process. You know, it was like, show the reader, don't tell the reader. Mm -hmm. All of those things and expand on this. What were you feeling in this moment? And so those were the kind of pieces, but that took, I would say four or five months, the editing process. Okay. So it took a longer time than it did for you to write the initial draft. Yes. 
So did you feel like, as you said, you, you wrote it fairly quickly, and that was like, I'm sure, a lot of emotional turmoil to get it out. With you struggling with perfectionism, I teach writing to students. That can be very difficult for the person who's receiving what is hopefully constructive criticism. <laughs> and it also can be difficult for the person who's giving the constructive criticism because writing is personal. You know, even if you're not, you know, in your case, you were writing your memoir about these struggles. But even if somebody's just writing, you know, a story they made up in their imagination, it's kind of like their baby. So when you were preparing to have meetings with your editor, did you have to do uh, self-talk so that you would approach it and not maybe be as, as vulnerable? The hardest part for me was doing, like when I got the edits and they wanted me to dive deeper, that was so hard because I was like, I don't want to relive these things again. Mm -hmm. I've, I've written this and I'm done, but it, I was not done. And, you know, my self-talk, you know, it's interesting because as someone who I teach perfectionism and I'm a recovering perfectionist and that's my niche, but I teach it because I need it the most, right? I struggle with perfectionism. And this was the one space where I really didn't struggle with it because I knew it wasn't going to be my only book. And I really just kind of lived by that motto of Elizabeth Gilbert. And I was like, done is better than perfect. The perfectionist to me, what really came up was like forcing myself to read it because I was afraid I was going to find so many errors and I just wanted to avoid it. And so making myself read word for word, page for page and read, you know, start to finish like the final time after having read it several times, that was probably the hardest piece. So I've kept a blog since about 2006, since I became a mom and having to deal with OCD. And I know for myself, there's a difference for me between writing something the way I used to in a journal or a notebook that nobody else saw and writing something that. I know that other people are going to read. The way I think about it is that the stuff that I write that nobody else sees, it's just like pure unadulterated feelings, right? And the stuff that other people see, I take the time to like look at it with sort of rational eyes and sort of take my emotions and filter them through my intellect, I guess. So for you, was it more like journal writing or was it more like an intellectual process? Talk to us about that. Yeah, this was more journal writing, which I, for me is easier. <laughs> my next book will not be journal writing. And so I feel like I will struggle with perfectionism a little more, <laughs> actually mm. a lot more with my next book, because it'll be about how to overcome perfectionism. It'll be more self-help <laughs> and less memoir, but definitely personal story. So for me, it it was more journal writing and I was, I mean, pretty brutally honest in it. It's funny when people tell me they've read my book, A, I'm honored just that they read my book, but B, I'm like, oh, then you know me really well. <laughs> yeah. So I guess I've never really thought about it like that, but does it make you feel vulnerable then when you, when you go to book signings and things and people have read your book and want to talk to you about it? Um, well, it came out during COVID, so I haven't been able to have a book signing yet. For me, the most vulnerable part was, you know, my parents reading it. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stories about the hurt that I felt as a child and finding that balance of like writing stories for me and what's relevant and not hurting them, but also giving my perspective of what happened and how I felt. But when people read it, I mean, this book, I was really vulnerable in it. And I don't know, I didn't struggle with that, which is just really interesting as we're having this conversation is <laughs> this is, you know, the one area in my life 
but I also haven't celebrated this book a lot, you know, like mm. people will be like, Oh, like I'll give a presentation. And they were like, did you tell people to buy your book? And I'm like, Oh no, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's like subconsciously. I'm like, that was a really, a, a very raw account of my life. It's done. <laughs> yeah. Did your parents know that you were publishing? Did they read it? What was that like in terms of, did you not let them see it until it was published? So then it's kind of like do or die. It's out there and. No, I, I told them about it. I was like, I'm writing a book. I got a publishing contract. This is happening. And my parents were afraid of what was going to be in there, but we still had a cordial, a peaceful relationship about it. And I, I also offered them to, you know, the opportunity to read an advanced copy. And my dad took me up on it. My mother still has not read my book, which is probably for the best, honestly. But, you know, everything between us is great. And I think that they thought it was going to be so much worse. I mean, the stories, I was really thoughtful about it. I was like, I don't want to put this story in there to harm someone. What does this story have to do with me? Why am I putting this story in there? I I think anybody who's struggled, whether it's addiction or really any sort of mental health issue or, you know, every family has its weird dynamics. And so I think that it's like, I know for myself, I thought things about my parents that then when I got older, I, you know, you you mature and you realize that your parents are not perfect people. They may be really great people, but they're not perfect people and they have baggage of their own that has nothing to do with you, but because you're their child, you struggle with it too in your own way. So I I think that's an interesting component to it. Yeah. They were doing the best they knew how to do. Right. So I'm wondering how writing this book helped or didn't help your mental health. It helped my mental health because I was able to, I would say during maybe didn't help my mental health. It was a really (laughs) triggering period but it allowed me to process everything and close the chapter on that, you know, release it, let go of the past. Uh, I mean, I'm human, so I'm sure there's definitely some things I still am holding on to, but it allowed me to, to just close that chapter and let it go. And, and so that was really, really helpful. So you've used a lot of your experiences in your life to become a, a transformational coach. So do you use your book in some of the coaching that you do? You know, the book actually made me realize the severity of perfectionism, not only in my life. And I was like, if I'm struggling with this, then other people are struggling with this. And they may not be struggling with Adderall, but they're struggling with perfectionism, right? Procrastination, people pleasing, body image issues, all of those things. And I was like, no one's talking about perfectionism in this way. And so the book led me to create all of my training programs. It was the inspiration for what I exclusively coach on now, which is perfectionism. I don't use the book so much in my training and coaching because it's a personal account of my life, but people definitely come to me for help after reading my book. Do you plan to write other books about moving beyond addiction? Yeah, I'm definitely going to write another book on how to overcome perfectionism and everything that it includes and the details of perfectionism. And I'm doing a lot of research on right now. So that'll be the focus of the next book. I'm excited about this one because this will be a bigger challenge for me to write. So I'm looking at your book and it was published by Changing Lives Press. Are they a press that mainly publishes memoirs and self-help books and things like that? They do a lot of like health and 
and, and some memoir. My book was a different project for them. I was thinking it's interesting that people really crave these kind of memoirs now such that there's a, a little independent press, yeah. which is awesome. That's, you know, that's yeah. mainly what they're publishing. And it, and it shows sort of that, that demand for it, you know? Yeah. And there's, there's so many of those memoirs that are coming out that have been out and it's, it's really popular right now and, and they're powerful. Yeah. And you know, it's what you were saying about everybody has a story to tell and to get it out there and just do it. Right. Yes, for sure. <laughs> I'm curious, you know, from going through the process of deciding you want to write it, writing it, finding an agent, editing everything you've gone through because you are a transformational coach who deals with perfectionism in people. Were there any lessons for yourself from going through that process that you now use when you work with other people or, or with companies? Yeah. I think the most important part is like, you know, what, what Glennon Doyle told me, which was just write it, just get started. And so, you know, one of the mantras that I, I coach on and that I lead by is, you know, just get started because as, as perfectionists, we, we procrastinate, we stay stuck, we can be stuck in indecision. And so it's so important just to get into action, which builds, you know, your self-confidence. So that's one of the things. And then I think the coolest thing, like I'm an example for other people that it is possible for them. Like any dream that you have is possible. You just have to believe in yourself and get it done. Like I remember telling some people, I was like, I'm going to get a publishing contract. And they were like, yeah, right. And I was like, I am. And I don't know how, but I am. <laughs> and it's just about not giving up on your dream, believing in it. And that's how I use it. I'm like, if I can write a book, you can write a book. This isn't just exclusive to me. This is available to anyone. And I'm a big believer that like whatever dreams you've been given, they've been given to you for a reason. So it wasn't happenstance that I got this idea to write my memoir, right? That was a dream meant for me. And that translates to everyone. Whatever dreams you have are meant for you and you can make them happen. Well, Vitaly, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you for the time today and, and for sharing my story and for reading my book. Thank you. Carrie and I are back. Uh, we enjoyed talking with JD and Vitaly about their experiences in their mental health journeys and also about writing. But Carrie, I want to know a little bit about what you have been reading. What's going on over there? Well, I, I have been reading a lot, but one of the books that I just finished, actually, it, even though it is, it's not a memoir, it's a fictional book that's for young readers, it really ties into what JD and Vitaly talk about in some ways in, in their books. So the book is called The Benefits of Being an Octopus by Anne Braden. And so it sounds like it would be a nonfiction book. It is not. It is the story of a girl named Zoe. I listened to it on audiobook. It was kind of hard to listen to because Zoe is a middle school student and her mom hasn't always made great relationship choices. And her mom's got some self-esteem issues. A lot of those issues are related to emotional abuse by her partner. And for a time, Zoe and her mom were homeless. They lived in their car. And so her mom looks at 
being with this current boyfriend as, you know, a way to have some stability. They have a, a car and they, they live in a trailer. So they've got, you know, a roof over their head and they've got food. Now they still struggle for sure. Right. They, it's not like everything's wonderful. They still struggle with money, but they do have some stability. But what Zoe comes to realize as a result of getting involved with the debate team at her school is that her mom is being emotionally abused and they're all being emotionally abused by this boyfriend. And so Zoe ends up using some of the strategies and tools that she learns from debate to help her mom get out of that situation, get out of that relationship. So on the one hand, it was kind of this positive story about overcoming not just overcoming, but realizing, I think a lot of times people don't even realize that they're being emotionally abused and coming to a point where you sort of gain a sense of control. But it was really, really hard to read hmm. because, you know, the reality is there's a lot of women who don't get out of those situations. And there's, there's a lot of children who suffer because of emotional abuse. They see their moms being abused and then they sort of think that's normal. And then they either become abusers themselves or they fall into relationships in which they're abused. The tie-in with the octopus, I mean, you know, I have a thing for, for yes. octopuses. The tie-in, which I thought was really smart. It's a metaphor that that carries through the whole book, but she talks about how she's like an octopus, or I guess that would be a simile, but she's an octopus because she manages to camouflage herself and she manages to squeeze into an uh, and out of situations using some of the tools. She's really fascinated by octopuses. And so she really identifies with how they're really smart, but people think, oh, they're gross or, you know, they're misunderstood, I guess. And she feels that way because she's a bright kid, but she's poor and her circumstances don't allow her to kind of shine the way other students might shine. So it, there were a lot of really great things in this book. I felt like it was really smartly written. The hard part is that it was just really emotionally hard to read mm -hmm. for me or to listen to since it was an audiobook. But I think it really ties in well to to what we're focusing on this week about, you know, mental health and how that can affect your life. So how did you find this book? I mean, did it just like pop up on your feed because it had an octopus in the title or? Um, no, I, you know, I don't really know where I heard about this book, to be perfectly honest. I probably just, you know, like I saw the cover at some point and went, ooh, octopuses. And so, you know, like I said, it's not a nonfiction book at all. But like I said, I, I gave it four stars. I thought it was really, really good. But again, it's sort of a feel good book at the end of it, but not, not really. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So anyway. I, I think that there's certain types of books for everybody, it might be a different thing that are just hard to to read about. Like for me, I don't have this in my background at all, you know, so it's not like it's triggering because I've experienced it, but anything about domestic abuse, I have a really hard time reading about or ch child abuse. Yeah. You know, for other people, it can be other things. Well, what have you been reading? Are you able to just narrow it down to one thing? 
<laughs> yes. I mean, I feel like we've talked about some really heavy topics today, and I'm going to go a little lighter and talk about this book that delighted me. Oh. Um, and it's called Harry's Trees by John Cohen, and it's a fictional story about a man named Harry who loses his wife in a freak accident, but believes in his heart that her death is his fault. Did you say this is a lighter read? It is a lighter read. You have to let me explain it. It does have some more serious topics in it, but it does end up as a positive story at the end. So Harry insisted on buying a lottery ticket at a convenience store in downtown Philadelphia before he and his wife were going to go to a movie. And while he's doing that, his wife stood across the street and a piece of machinery from the construction site behind her falls on her and kills her. So Harry wanted to buy that lottery ticket, insisted on buying that lottery ticket because he dreams of leaving his desk job at the U.S. Forest Service so he can start his own tree business and really do what he loves and what he studied in college to be, which is someone who works in nature and works with trees. What he has now is he's like a paper pusher. Even though he works for the U.S. Forest Service, it's all sort of like theoretical. He's on a computer. He's working with papers in a bureaucracy. And he's not out in nature doing what he loves. So he's devastated after his wife's death and discovers that he's actually going to get millions of dollars in a settlement with the constructions company. And while most people would be thrilled by that, it actually makes him even more distraught because he Mm. feels like in a way he won the lottery after all, Mm. but his wife is the one that paid the price. It sort of feels like blood money to him. And this sends him over the edge and he quits his job. He deserts his home and he runs off to the woods of rural Pennsylvania where he decides that he's going to kill himself. So what happens next is a little bit magical, or at least it feels that way. So his plan to commit suicide is unsuccessful. And in the meantime, a little girl is wandering the forest around her home and finds him. And Her father died recently unexpectedly as well. He had a brain aneurysm. And her dad was an outdoorsman who built her an elaborate treehouse in the woods right around their house. And the little girl and her mother allow Harry to live in the treehouse while he tries to get his head on straight and figure out what he's going to do with the rest of his life and what's he going to do with all this money. And this is where these three characters, Harry, the little girl, Oriana, and her mother, become intricately linked. Oriana has a plan for all of them and for Harry's money. And a lot of the plan comes from a strange book that the town's old librarian has loaned to her. So I'm not going to say any more about the story, but there's a little bit of magic in this. And we aren't sure, or I wasn't sure, if it is real or imagined, but it feels magical nonetheless. And if you are somebody who likes nature writing, you might also like this book, even though it's fiction, because you learn a lot about trees. That He doesn't hit you over the head with it, but you know he sprinkles little tidbits here and there. And I read this at the beginning of spring in April, just as the leaves were starting to come out. And that is also when this book is taking place. And so that was a really fun connection for me. 
There are some very sad parts in this, but there are also some very funny and sweet parts. And you really come to care about these characters as well as the quirky townspeople in this small town in Pennsylvania. And in many ways, this is an, an adventure story. There's a little bit of a romance in it. But I came away from this book with a big smile on my face and just a really, just a really great feeling. I would highly recommend it. Cool. So in a way, this one also has some mental health issues in it as well. It maybe is just dealt with in a gentler way, Mm -hmm. a more, uh, I guess, magical way, you know, in a a more perfect world, you know, where yours was much probably more realistic. Yeah. Well, you know, our guest this week wrote memoirs. I'm wondering if you have any top messy memoir picks. Mm. That you well, would, you know, if somebody forced you to do like a top three or something that you ooh. would add. I know. Uh, I don't know. If, uh, we, we love top. Yes. Things. Well, probably the one that always comes to mind. I think I've mentioned this one on the show before as one of my favorite memoirs, but it would be Wild by Cheryl Strayed. Mm-hmm. And that is her memoir of, well, it was about overcoming addictions and grieving over her mother's death and bad relationships that she was in. And what she ended up doing was deciding one day that she was going to hike the Pacific Crest Trail that runs up and down California. And it was a memoir of her of her journey. And it was a journey not just about her hike, but also her emotional journey to try to heal herself. I think I tend to like memoirs that are journeys, both physical and emotional. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that would probably be my top one. What about you? So I thought of three, actually. One that is Brain on Fire, mm. My Month of Madness by Susanna Kahalen. So she had like a an infection in her brain, but basically she started to go crazy. You know, she, she lost the ability to reason and she ended up in the hospital and they determined that you know, it wasn't really mental health. It, it was an infection in her brain. And so it took the uh, the doctors a long time to realize that that was what was going on. So I had heard about that a long time ago and read it. And it was just fascinating because there's so much about the brain that we don't understand, right? Like there are things that can happen in your brain that can cause mental health issues that are physiological like infection but then there are other things that doctors and researchers still don't really understand you know like the physiological components of some issues that that pop up so I thought that was a really interesting book a book that I read recently that I really liked reasons to stay alive by Matt Haig he wrote and I'm I'm going to be reading it soon he wrote the midnight library Right. Which is on my list. I bought it the other day. He has dealt with depression his whole life. And so he wrote this book and it's not really a memoir, but it's about like the things that he thought about when he was struggling with depression and the things that he realized. It was a super quick read. And I dealt a little bit with depression when I was dealing with my anxiety. And so I felt like it was a really like if you've gone through that, you read his book and you're like, Oh, somebody else gets it. You know, somebody else has felt this way. So I really like that one. 
And then the last one that I thought about, I read this a long, long time ago. It is actually a biography. It's called A Beautiful Mind by Sylvia Nasser. And it is the story of John Nash, who was an economist. He was a really, really smart guy. I think he even, he was a Nobel laureate in economics. But he developed, he developed. I think he had schizophrenia. Schizophrenia. Didn't he? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. He did have schizophrenia, and so it is about his struggle with that because he was brilliant, and and then you know his life really fell apart because of schizophrenia. And actually, probably a lot of people remember more the movie that came out, which had Russell Crowe. Yeah. Who portrayed John Nash. That movie came out in 2001. And that was before I was diagnosed with OCD. So, you know, even before my own issues, I just thought it was really fascinating. And I'm pretty sure I saw the movie first and I was so intrigued by his story that then I picked up the book and read it. So those are three that really kind of stick out for me as books about mental health issues and overcoming them in some in some form or fashion maybe not a hundred percent i mean there's not necessarily a cure you know you're sort of in remission (laughs) Um, right right i do have one more i can talk about one that we read in our book club several years ago i don't know if you remember it carrie but it's called don't let's go to the dogs tonight yes by alexandra fuller and this was a memoir of her very dysfunctional family growing up in africa during the 70s and 80s. And her family uh, was a white family. I can't remember if it was South Africa. Rhodesia. Rhodesia. During a time they were taking all of the land away from white, I put in air quotes, landowners because Mm -hmm. they had the land because of colonization, British colonization, but they were distributing it among the you know, the native population again. But Africa is actually kind of a major character in this, uh, the land itself, which makes me think of the episode we had a couple weeks ago with Melissa Juwan about strong sense of place. But also in this memoir, she talks about her mother who suffered from mental illness. And her mother had had several children who had died I think she had three or four children that had died either in childbirth or as young children. And her mother just kind of never could recover from that. I remember really enjoying that messy memoir. Yeah, that was a good one. Alexandra Fuller has several books. And I actually, I think I read another one of her. And they're all, I mean, there are other books that she's written about her family. And they're good as well. If you like what we're doing with the show, Sharing it with your friends is one of the best way to get the word about our show out there. And if you would like to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, uh, we would surely appreciate it. Uh, Thanks for (laughs) joining us this week on The Perks of Being a Book Lover. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, 
Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.